You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Several years ago, I saw a study about mice that had been put into a bucket, a five-gallon bucket that was swirling water. And these mice would drown inside of 45 minutes as they would swirl this water, this ice-cold water. The mice in there, and they'd die. They'd just drown and give up unless they introduced an escape and put a stir stick in there to rescue the mice at about minute number 43. If you would take the same mice and put them in a bucket where they would get rescued at 43 minutes, they could then last for four days before they finally gave up and drowned. They introduced the idea that if you just hold on, you're going to get rescued. And so if these mice, who were the exact same strength, exact same intelligence, all of that, if they thought there was some chance of rescue, they would hold on for four days and not drown at the 45-minute mark. He said, that is a terrible story. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Redeemer. <laughs> I want you to know something about hope. I want you to know something. Don't say, okay, so I'm the mouse in this story. Now, hold on a second. I want you to know that biblical hope is not the same as earthly, worldly hope. The idea that you're crossing your fingers and hoping things are going to work out. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the idea that you have a word of confidence from God, a promise that you are certain God's word is true, his promise is good. It's not just made to them out there, it is to us. And because we have promise from God, we have hope in our hearts. We can endure the darkness of this world. We can endure the darkness of our own broken hearts. We can endure this lifetime because we have hope in Jesus Christ. That this is not the end and this is not the final story. That this is just the beginning of an eternal story of grace that will be ours. Well, last week, Pastor Michael spoke about how the birth of Jesus could give hope to those who are marginalized, those who are the left out. Today I want to show you that the birth of Jesus gives hope to those who are far away. And by far away, I don't just mean those who are geographically far away. And we're all a long ways from Jerusalem. I think we can agree with that. I mean those who come in here this morning and feel as though their heart has been distant from God lately. Maybe you don't feel particularly spiritual right now. Maybe you're here because someone invited you and you, you came just to appease them. You said, fine, if, if I go, will you kind of ease up on the invitations? And so you're here because someone invited you. Friends, I want you to hear this. You're here because God intends you to be here listening to this message. And if your heart has been lukewarm, he came for you this morning. Let's pray and let's ask him to help us to hear his voice this morning. Our Father and our God, we bow in front of you. We praise you and thank you for your great kindness, your persistent love, 
your pursuing love for us. Father, it's not how good our grip is on you that matters. It's your grip on us. It's not the, the power and the strength of our faith or our emotion. It's the eternal calling of you for us that matters this morning. God, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters as they listen to this message today. Lord, would you encourage their hearts? Would you bring them close to you? Would you hold them close to your hearts? Draw them near. Speak words of affirmation and words of correction where correction is needed. Help us, God, to trust in you, to listen to you, and to feel the loving <coughs> kindness and compassion and generosity that is ours because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray, Lord God, that we would feel the confidence and the hope that is ours because of what Christ has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the idea that we seek Him because He was first seeking us. Any person who seeks God is ultimately seeking Him because He initiated, He is seeking us. In verses 3 down to really 8, and then again in 16 through 18, we see that Herod's trouble is the trouble that we also feel in our own hearts. He's not alone in that trouble. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see what is at the heart of worship. The heart of worship. So, chapter 2, verse 1, and let me just apologize ahead of time. I am going to really upset your nativity set. I'm going to rearrange it a little bit in this. I say I am. The scriptures are going to rearrange your nativity set. So beware. Just heads up. Verses 1 and 2 say, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we come to worship him. And there's a couple of things we want to slow down and look at. When it's introducing this idea of wise men from the east in the days of Herod, we need to slow down and understand who these people are. Herod is the Idumean king who is a usurper. He's not born Jewish. He's married into the Jewish nation. He has a Jewish wife. He is put in place by Caesar Augustus. He is what we would know historically as Herod the Great. He is an extraordinarily talented politician. He's a very wise manager. He is Herod the Great builder. He's the one that built the uh, fortress that is known as Masada in the southern parts of Israel. He is a puppet king who has been placed there by Caesar Augustus. And all of his power, all of his freedom, all of his wealth is really because he is a vassal of Rome. He is there to govern under the good will of Rome. He's not popular amongst the Jews. 
But he is a very shrewd and very brutal man. After him will come sons and grandsons who will also take the title of Herod. They are in partnership with Rome. They are there because Rome wants them there. And apart from them, they do not exist. So who are these wise men from the east? Well, I want you to know they are two years away from chapter 1. So if you're doing your nativity set the right way, take the wise men and put them in your, like, way front, uh, like, family room, okay? Well, unless you're rest of your nativity set there. Put them in the dining room, if you will. Put them upstairs, but don't put them on the table with Joseph and Mary, because they weren't there. And if they have what looks like crowns on their head because you think they're kings, snap those little things off. Nowhere in Scripture do we see them as kings. They're just wise men. At the birth of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, angels, donkeys, lambs, that's it. In some ways, it's more glorious because of that, right? They're marginalized. But they are brought into the fullness of God's presence, and by that, they are made glorious in the observation of what they got to partake in, what they got to see. But the wise men, nowhere near. Two years away. And if you want to know who these wise men are, some of your uh, Bibles might even just call them magi. Yes, that's where we end up with the word, the root word for magic. They are the wise men that probably came out of Babylon. Most scholars agree that these are the wise men that are referred to all through the book of Daniel. That many generations, 483 years before that, the nation of Israel had been held captive in Babylon. And there were wise men. Remember, Babylon was a conquering nation. They took the best and the brightest from all their conquered nations. They brought them into Babylon. And the most learned scholars of that group became what we would know as the wise men. These men have been exposed to the prophecies of Daniel. They are, by any historian's measure, the brightest minds of their generation. Sought after scholars, astronomers, who knew how to read the stars and know the times. These are the MIT and Harvard graduates of their time. They are respected scholars. They are wealthy men. And what does it say they have come to do? It actually reads that they were continually asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? It's the picture of these learned men with their great entourage. It nowhere says three. Again, I'm sorry, but it just isn't there. There's three gifts mentioned. This might have been an entourage of 12 men. Loaded up with camels, dressed in the fullness of their beautiful, their beautiful diplomatic garb, right? And there they are, walking around in Jerusalem saying, where is he at? The one who was born, king of the Jews. Continually open in the open, uh, asking in the open air, where is he at? Surely you all saw it too. So they shamelessly are saying, we've come a long ways. And we want to find him who was born recently, the king of the Jews. Someday in heaven, there's every possibility that you're going to sit down at some form of a meal. 
And over that meal, the discussion will be something like this. Whether it's 10,000 years from now or 10 million years from now, you'll sit down to a meal, and over that meal, this will be the discussion that you'll love to have and you'll love to hear and you'll love to tell. This will be the question. So how did he save you? How did he save you? How did the Father call out to you and bring you home and bring you into this? And if you're sitting across the table from these men, you know what they're going to say? Somewhere, somehow, one of them's going to say, well, actually, I was born in Babylon. I was of a priestly caste, a scholarly caste. My parents were familiar with the one true God of Israel. And one night as I was studying the stars, I saw something that was utterly unique. It shouldn't have been there as it was. A star that had risen in a peculiar way. And in my soul, I knew it was the one God of all creation calling me to himself. And so I didn't waste any time. I loaded up. I loaded up the best of my treasury. I loaded up with my friends, the other scholars who were looking with me. And we followed that star. And it brought us to him who was born king of the Jews. If you ask them, why are you here? Why did you seek him? You know what they'll say? Because he first sought us. He revealed himself to us at a distance. And he called us to himself. We are here because he was first seeking us. And all around that table someday, I want you to remember this great truth. We love him because he first loved us. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. It started with him. What does it say in John chapter 6 and verse 44? What does Jesus say? He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does it say in Acts chapter 13, verse 48? When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and hear this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they come? Because God had called out to them when they lived far away. They were marginalized in one way, not, not just that they were the ones who were left out. These were some who were marginalized by distance. They were far away, but God knew who they were, and he called their name, and he brought them to himself. Don't let this trouble you, this idea of God's sovereign choosing from eternity past. Rejoice in this. Why am I a Christian today? Well, in 1988, the spring of 1988, in a frightened state, having encountered a chaotic situation, I got down on my knees, I took my Bible to my chest my grandparents had given me, and I trembling prayed, God, I wish you had been here today to help me. Okay, that's what it looked like from... 18-year-old me. But you know what it looked like from heaven? From eternity past, a decision had been made to write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And from where God sat, the eternal call found its way to 428 Mountain View in Hearst, Texas. And it found an 18-year-old on his knees praying and asking God, draw near to me. There is something beautiful and glorious about the complexity of how God works 
in all of our choices, in all of our decisions, all of our right and lefts, and God still gets his way. God calls out and rescues us. And from where we sit, yes, we made decisions. Yes, we followed, we did this, or we rejected. But ultimately, God gets what God wants, and God saved us. Why did the Magi come? Well, the star, of course. Okay, there's plenty of people in Babylon that didn't see it, or saw it, and didn't take any notice of it. And so they come. And they want to do this. Listen to this. We saw his star, and we came to worship him. You did what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we loaded everything up, and we came a long ways. And we, just without any shame, walked through the marketplace and started asking, where's he at? Because we've come to worship him. Well, you can understand how King Herod, who fancies himself the king of the Jews, might have a problem with someone saying, where is he who was born? King of the Jews. We've come to worship him. That, that, you can see the collision that's about to happen, right? Look at this. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. All Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him Bethlehem in Judea. It is written by the prophet Micah, Micah 5, 2. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the, the by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I want to just slow down for a second. Herod sees himself as the savior of Israel. He's the one. He, he has great nobility. When you start talking about someone from Bethlehem, the rinky-dink, out-of-the-way, no-place, blue-collar, whatever you want to say it, and then look at this. Herod finds himself saying, Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? There's nothing great about Bethlehem. It's just an out-of-the-way little place. Now, yeah, that's what they thought too. But the scriptures say in Micah chapter 5, You, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means the least. Your nobility is linked to one thing. It's to Jesus. You know, anywhere Jesus had been born, if he'd been born in Italy, Texas, it would be a global stopping place right now. I don't know if you guys have been to Italy, Texas. There ain't much there, right? Some of you have. You just did much there. I was there yesterday. I promise you, there ain't much there. These out-of-the-way places, in fact, out-of-the-way people, their only sense of nobility, their only sense of having dignity and worth is because Jesus came from there, or Jesus met this person, Jesus interacted with them. So he says, hey, I know what you're thinking, Herod, but the truth is that's where the Messiah is prophesied to have been born. And so Herod has a little bit different approach to how he wants to interact with this king of the Jews. He tells the, 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 the wise men, okay, Go and search diligently for him, and when you find him, come back to me, let me know, so that I may worship with you. What, what's with the subterfuge? Why not just bow down, Herod? 
I love the word subterfuge. That's so rarely to use it in a sense. Why not? Come on. What, what is your thing? Why, why is it that your response is that you want to seek and destroy him? Their response is they want to seek and worship. I want you to hear this. A real and true interaction with Jesus will always push people to one extreme or the other. Hatred and repulsion or love and worship. It, you, you ever notice this about olives? People love olives or they hate olives. No one says, yeah, I can take them or leave them. Olives aren't, they don't give you that option. You're in or you're out. I'm not sure why I use that as an illustration next to Jesus. I, I feel like I probably shouldn't have, but I want you to know this. If you encounter him rightly, if you see him accurately, you're going to have one of two responses. That you're going to repulse from him, hate him, push away from him, or you're going to bow down and you're going to worship him. There really isn't a whole lot in between. So my question when I read this text is, Herod, what gives? Why not if this star arises and if these wise men who are smarter than you, the scholars of their generation, if they want to seek him to worship him, why don't you just join him, join those guys? Get on your knees in front of him and call him king and worship him. I mean, do you ever feel that when you're reading the story of how Pontius Pilate is interacting with Jesus, and, and you kind of just want to say, your wife warns you not to have anything to do with him, that she suffered much in the dream because of him. Why? You're standing in front of him, you don't want to do this. Why don't you just get on your knees and worship him as, as your king? And I'll tell you the answer why Herod doesn't want to bow down and worship Jesus and that problem it says he was troubled by, that trouble lives in me, and that trouble lives in you as well. See, if we're going to bow in front of Jesus, because we know who he is, it means a dethroning of ourselves. A dethroning of me. If he's king, I'm not king. He's king of the Jews, not Herod. To bow down and worship him as king means I have to get off of the throne myself. Dethrone myself. Say that I'm no longer going to be the master of my own ship. He's going to be king. And he's not, he's, he doesn't allow me to sit, sit in the middle as neutral. It's going to have to be one or the other. <coughs> Let me illustrate why I think the trouble in Herod's heart is the trouble that we identify with. If he's going to be king, then I'm going to have to worship, bow down. That means I'm going to have to take all of his words and all the words of Scripture seriously. So here it is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, if he's king, this is his instruction to us as husbands. You're to give your life up for the sake of your wife. Okay? Any part of you say, eh, I don't know. Okay? Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Okay? Submit to the governing authorities, even those who are unjust. Is your inner Herod starting to say, ah, hold on. Well, I'm not done yet. Honor the Lord from your wealth. 
Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Love one another. Serve one another. Your inner hair starts to go, hang on a second. He's king. That's one thing. But surely I still get to be kind of a king, right? Like I get to do what I kind of want. Like, now nah, if he's king, I'm not king. I have to get off my throne. I've got to bow in front of him. Not just once in my life, but as an ongoing posture because he is my living king. That's what it means. When you encounter him and you see him rightly, you're either going to say, I'm not doing that. If he's king, it means the death of me. What about me? What about what I want? That's what Herod is refusing to do, is to take his seat on the floor rather than on his throne. And so he says no. In fact, he says, you tell me where he's at so I can go worship him. And we know the terrible story of what he does in Bethlehem. Let me just skip ahead and read what happens when he finds out that Jesus has been found and he, the wise men did not come back. It says that when Herod, when he saw that the wise men had tricked him, he became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children of Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was written by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because her children were no more. The wise men want to worship him. Herod wants to kill him. Where do you fall? Because if you say, well, I'm, I'm kind of neutral. You haven't really seen him like they have. It's because they know exactly who he is that they respond the way they do. If we shrug our shoulders at Jesus, and, and, and this time of year where we get to really focus on who he is and why he came, if we got to go, yeah, I mean, it's good. It's great. And then you go about your life. As if you know that truth, but nothing changes. You haven't really seen him. You haven't really understood who he is. He's the God of all creation, made human flesh in the form of a toddler. And he calls for us to either bow and worship, or to absolutely push away from him and say, I can't do that, it means the death of me. And so Herod wants him dead. The wise men want to bow in front of him. Not only that, not only do they want to bow in front of him, listen to what else they do, because this is at the heart of worship, and I think it's absolutely beautiful. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it had rose before them, and uh, they went, to, pardon me, went before them until they came till it came to rest of the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. The him is important there. They didn't worship them. They worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. <coughs> can, I, can I ask you, can I plead with you to try to use your inner eye right now 
And I want you to leave this room with me for a second. And I want you to go back to this working class house, modest house. And I want you to try to picture this. A great entourage of men who are very, very highly educated. Wealthy men. A large group of them. Find this house. Where apparently the glory of God, just like the, the, the way the Holy Spirit illuminated uh, the tower of fire at night in the Old Testament, somehow this star shined right down on top of this house. And when they found it, they start rejoicing exceedingly. These MIT Harvard scholars of their day and their fine robes start to rejoice exceedingly. They knock on the door and they peer through the door and see a two-year-old and his parents. And joy fills their faces. Tears start to fall down their cheeks. And they bow down. And as they're bowing down with trembling hands and thanking God for what they're seeing, can you see the look on Mary and Joseph's face? The bewildered, confused look on their face as these men, middle-aged men perhaps, are bowing in front of their toddler? And we have some new moms sitting here. What do you think? A bunch of guys show up, big crew, and they bow down and begin to weep and rejoice and praise God as they bow and kneel in front of your baby? How does that look and feel to you? I mean, wouldn't you kind of want to say, what the heck is going on here? I want to say something about worship. We were born for it. We were made for it. We will worship. One way or another, you're going to worship. Whether you worship money or a sports team, we were at the Texas football playoffs yesterday in Texas Stadium. And I'm telling you, I saw worship. Worship just means work, giving work. We are wired to worship. We will worship. Either ourselves, our children, our company, our spouse, you name it, we're going to worship. We're going to worship the team we love. We're going to get all silly about it when they throw a ball and someone catches it and runs across the line. We will scream. We will celebrate. We will high-five. We'll do all that. <coughs> Nothing wrong with that. Go ahead and have a big old time. Scream and shout and, and celebrate and all that. But just know this. You're worshiping. You're worshiping. And when it comes to this great victory that is greater than anything we could imagine, that we were saved the day that he died on the cross for us. And he was born into this world that we might be saved. That he would come, that he would find us, that he would call our name, that he would die on a cross embarrassed and alone so that we could have eternal life, our sin forgiven, his righteousness in our place there's a good reason that we might want to throw our hands up and go, praise God, forever safe, forever safe, forever safe. Oh, God, thank you for saving me. That's worship. That's what that is. There's nothing neutral about eternal life in Jesus. These men are bowing. 
These men are on their knees in front of him. And a casual observer might say this. Either these guys are complete idiots and shouldn't be doing this, or they know something I don't. Right? Maybe they're idiots. They don't look like idiots. They don't sound like idiots. Maybe they know something that I don't. Maybe I should be on my knees in front of that child as well. See, there is no middle ground. There is no margin of, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I believe all that. Eh. Friends, this is the beautiful thing about what these men are doing. They're not just bowing in front of him. These guys open up their treasuries, and they start giving out gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's a lot of symbolism. I've heard sermons, there's a lot of symbolism about how these gold and you know represents what it means to be a king, and how the uh, myrrh is for his burial, preparation for his burial, like a symbolism that he's coming as a king to die. I, I see all that, but here's what I want you to know. Those gifts were expensive. They didn't come empty-handed into worship. They came with their highest and best, and they laid it in front. They didn't just lay their lives in front of them. They took their best of what they had, and they laid it in front of this toddler. Because he's the king. He's worthy. That's the joy. That's the heart. When I see him rightly, when I see who he is and what he has come here to do, worship is the response. Repulsion is the response. Herod wants him dead. They want to see him lifted high. Both of those are completely appropriate responses depending on how you see yourself in front of God. If you need a Savior, then you bow in front of Him. If you want to save yourself, then you want to see Him dead. He came to seek and save the lost. I want you to hear this. He came for those wise men when they were in Babylon. And he called them to himself. And guess what? He came for you. Before you knew him, he knew you. And just like he came for Adam and Eve when they were hiding and scared and covered with fig leaves, hiding behind a tree, he came for them. That's his nature. Our missionary God seeks you still today. The Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John Ultimately, if we sat around a table with her, she would probably say this someday in the future. He didn't come to Samaria for the water. He came for me. He came for me. He had no reason to go through that route except for her. And the uh, story of of the demoniac legion in Mark chapter 5, that he's uh, up in the northern part in the Gerasenes, he comes there. He sets that man free, and it says that as he's leaving, the man's trying to get in the boat with him. I'm coming. Wherever you're at, that's where I'm going. He says, no. I want you to go back to the Decapolis, the Roman cities, and I want you to tell your friends and family all that God has done for you today. He came to that area for that man. That's the reason he came. And friends, he came for you. He seeks you still. This is the beauty of God. This relationship that started in heaven from eternity past was His idea. He'll secure it. He'll hold on to you. 
And if you've wandered off, if you find yourself lukewarm towards the things of God, He's calling out again. He's seeking again. He's calling out to your heart, come home to me. Come home to me. I've made a way for you to come home to me. There's a story of a girl. She's a pastor's daughter. She tells the story of her dad apparently had some stuff on his computer, some pornography he'd been looking at, and the elders got wind of it, and they took him and said, hey, you're on break, and we're going to investigate this. And um, she said, you know, it was Christmas Eve, and I didn't know what to do. We always go to church, and so I just decided, well, I'm, I'm going to church tonight. I mean, it's Christmas. That's what we do. She shows up for the church service, and she says, I felt like the biggest oddball, the biggest out of, the, you know, fish out of water. Because there I am, my parents are at home, and there I am. And everybody's celebrating, and everybody's singing worship songs. And of course they are. It's Christmas. Why wouldn't they? She said, but I felt like I was so alone in that. Because I looked like, I, like what is she doing here? What, why is she here? I mean, doesn't she know that her dad's under investigation? He's about to get fired. She said, I suspected those investigations were going to find that, that it was all true. And she said, there I sat while the songs were being played and just weeping. And she said, I found myself talking to Jesus and I said to him, I'm ruining your heart. And she says, he said to me in my heart, no, you're not ruining my party. This is why I came. Not to seek those who are just celebrating and having fun, but I came to seek those who are mourning, those who are grieving. Those who are afraid, those who are lost and scared and feel alone. I can't. Christmas is about finding the person who is far away. I came for you. This is the whole meaning of this. I came for the lonely. I came for the broken. I came for those who are far away to draw them in and bring them home. Friends, I just want you to hear this. <coughs> Ask him again. Help me to see you rightly. Help me to see who you are and what you've done. Help me to see why it's so fully appropriate that I would bow in front of you, confess that you alone are God. You can take the throne, not me. I don't want it. I just want to worship you and give away my life and give away my treasure that I might know you and worship you as God. You found me when I was far away and you drew me near. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.